Good morning, Veritas. How are we doing today? Good. My name is Jordan Howell. I'm on staff here with Salt Company, our college ministry. Shout out, college people. Uh, welcome back, college students. Uh, we had our first Salt Company this last Thursday evening. And one thing that I was really excited to do with our students is cast a bigger vision for their life, help them understand what Salt Company is, why we do what we do. And one of the things that we, we talked about Thursday night is this idea of we value forever more than semesters. Here's what I mean by that. We as a church look at the years of 18 to 22 and we say, these years are formative. These years are valuable. We want to prioritize the next generation of leaders, workers, Lord willing, moms and dads, husbands and wives. We want to prioritize that next generation. However, we also understand that four years is very temporary. And when we think about the future of college students, we say, hey, here's the next step for you. Get plugged into a local church. This is the bride that Christ died for, right? To say, man, if you want to follow Jesus, not just during your college years, you don't just want to peak in college. You want to know, love, and follow Jesus for a lifetime? Come be a part of the family. And so I'm stoked that you're here. Uh, actually, part of being here, you may or may not have already known this, is if you were between the ages of 18 to 22, we would love to bless you with some Chick-fil-A meal cards, okay? So uh, after service, feel free to stop out by Info Central. There's a table. Uh, we just want to get to know you, get you connected, and we'll hook you up with some Chick-fil-A. Sound good? College students say, yup. Yep. Love it. And Veritas, seriously, it means the world to me as the college ministry director to say that you would look at the next generation and say, we also want to move towards you. We want to pray for you. We want to partner with you. We care about your flourishing. And so if you see someone that looks between the ages of 18 to 22, step out. Make yourself the awkward one that says, hey, you look like you're in college. It might be someone like me who still looks like he's in college, or you might stumble across a college student. And either way, just to say, hey, I care about you. Uh, we love that you're here. We want you to be a part of this family. Does that sound good, Veritas? If so, say, yup. Love it. All right. Uh, we've, we've made it through a little bit of a bitter stretch of winter. Anybody ready for a vacation? Anybody? Several of you? Yep. Uh, February 1st is typically a marking point when it's like, all right, we feel like we should be almost done with winter, but we're not even halfway yet. And so most people start thinking about vacation. Ellie and I jumped the gun a little bit. Uh, we took off to Florida in between Christmas and New Year's. No regrets, just going to say that. Uh, amazing vacation, relaxing for the most part. But one thing we got to do on the last day was uh, get a little adventurous, all right? We decided we were going to rent a jet ski in the intercoastal, which is essentially a highway for boats. And let's just say I wanted to open up the jet ski a little bit, right? Crank that thing down, start flying. We had a couple of moments where it's like, are we going to fly off? Maybe. We didn't. We were Okay. Uh, but there was one couple that was actually on the same jet ski tour with us, and it was actually pretty frustrating. We get to the end of this jet ski tour, and the tour guide's like, has anybody seen the couple on the yellow jet ski? I'm like, yeah, I have. They're putzing around going 10 miles an hour everywhere. So boring, just like barely driving. They just look scared the whole time, and... We, we go up and down the intercoastal, we look for them, we can't find them. We end up just going back, and guess what? where they were? Waiting. They went back early. 
That's almost as bad as when Ellie and I went on our honeymoon uh, to the Great Smoky Mountains. We went on a stand-up paddleboard tour. Got to see the mountains, kind of explore some of the nooks and crannies of of this body of water, even like jumping from a tree into the water. Uh, But there was one family that actually didn't get to enjoy the stand-up paddleboard tour nearly as much as us because of this reason. Their 10-year-old son, I'm not making this up, their 10-year-old son was laying down on his paddleboard watching an iPad. Yeah, the entire time. He was face down in the iPad in the midst of the mountains and the adventure that he could have explored. He's sitting there looking at an iPad. And his dad, rather than saying, hey, get your, hand, get your eyes up off the iPad, towed him along the entire time, just pulled him. I was like, wow, that is painful. And I started to just think, that's boring. That's lame. And though we laugh at that, I think as I've looked at Hebrews 11 and the text we're going to look at today, when it comes to our faith life, I'm afraid if you're anything like me, you may actually be laughing at yourself in that story. That this faith life that could be an adventure is being missed because we're playing it safe. We're going back early. Our eyes are down on our iPads rather than up on the mission that God has in front of us. And so as I've looked at Hebrews 11, we're going to jump in. I've just started to think maybe, maybe our life of faith is meant to be marked by more than just morning devos, coffee shop discipleship, Sunday morning worship, hanging out with Christian friends. Though though those are not bad things, Maybe we were made for more than that. And we're certainly made for more than punching a time clock, rushing kids around to extracurriculars, living the busy life, and retiring to a beach house. You see, as we open up to Hebrews 11, you can grab your Bibles. We need to remember that we are reading a letter that was written to a persecuted group of Christians. These formerly Jewish believers are being persecuted and pressed in against by the culture. And here's their temptation. Let's go back to Judaism because it's comfortable and it's safe. But at the end of chapter 10, the author is urging the Hebrews and urging us, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward Endure in the faith. And then the reminder in verse 39, we are not those who shrink back, but rather those who have faith. Amazing. We're not those who shrink back, but those have faith. And so if faith is marked by not shrinking back to comfort, what is faith marked by? That's where we're going today. We're going to be in verses 23 through 31. You can read along with me. We'll have it up on the screen. The Spirit says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the word of God, and these stories are amazing. (laughs) If you were to sit down with me and tell me, I don't read my Bible, that's boring. I'm here to tell you, you haven't read your Bible. (laughs) Because these stories are amazing. When you start to think about even last week's message, Ian saying, God is true to his promises. Right? When he makes a promise, he shows up, he fulfills it. We see that all throughout this text. But what do we see about the faith of these people? These people who follow God, what do we see of them? We see that their faith is maybe not safe by a worldly standard. Their faith is adventurous. One might even say their faith is is daring. Their faith is daring. And as we look at this text, we need to see that our faith, too, is meant to dare. First, we see that faith dares to fear God over man. See in verse 23, the story of Moses and his parents says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Back in Exodus 1, the king says, Here's the deal. If you have a son, you are to drown him in the Nile. But Moses' parents didn't do it. Why? Well, it says they saw him as beautiful, which I'm just going to stop there. Anybody with me to say that it might take a little bit of faith to look at a newborn child and call them beautiful? (laughs) Just taking a stab. I struggle with that. I look at newborns and I'm like, They'll be cute in about three months, right? Like, give them time. Um, with the exception, Michael and Erica Rhodes had a baby girl, Eliza. She is probably the cutest newborn I've ever seen. So shout out, Eliza. Um, but when we look at this text, it's easy to think that it's just like, oh, they thought their kid was cute, so they kept him. That's not what the Bible is saying, okay? Actually, in Acts 7.20, it's translated that... Moses' parents saw that he was beautiful in God's sight, meaning they saw that Moses was set apart for a specific task to be carried out by God. And so they said, am I going to fear the king's edicts? Am I going to fear what the king is going to do to me, what the king is going to do to my son, or am I going to fear God? Am I going to take him at his word? And that's exactly what they did. They kept Moses. They did not shrink back from the king. And by the grace of God, in verse 27, we get to see that Moses follows in his parents' footsteps. 
I think that's every parent's dream and desire is that their kids would also grow up in faith. And Moses, by faith, leaves Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses turns his back on Pharaoh in Egypt because he says, no, I'm going to side with the people of God. I'm going to stand with Israel. And this does not make Pharaoh happy. Pharaoh wants to kill Moses, but Moses flees to Midian. And it's not because he's afraid of what the king is going to do to him. It's because he actually believes that God wants to deliver Israel from Egypt. And he takes God at his word that he's going to do exactly what he says he will. And so he flees to Midian and he perseveres there for 40 years. 40 years of waiting for his return to Egypt to actually live out this promise. How does he do that? Because he sees him who is invisible. He believes in the invisible king of the universe, God himself, rather than fixing his attention on the king that he can see, this earthly king. And so the question for you and me is, how's it going? Fearing God or fearing man, how is it going for you? What comes to mind for me, is this idea of our gospel proclamation. Sharing the gospel. And I'm going to shoot you straight, Veritas. I do not like where I'm at here. Before coming to know Jesus, one of my biggest struggles was being a people pleaser. I found my acceptance in what people thought of me. I wanted them to like me. I wanted to be popular. I wanted to fit in. But in 2013, I understand that my acceptance comes from Jesus. It's not what people think of me. However, I still have to fight against this desire to please people. And unfortunately, the fear of fitting in can silence my gospel witness. In Matthew 10, there's a couple verses here, verse 32 and 33, which say, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And I just want you to know that when Jesus said these words, he wasn't thinking about Americans in the 21st century putting this as a picture on social media and captioning it, don't keep scrolling. <laughs> okay? He actually has in mind this idea of, you are going to go before kings and authorities. You're going to stand before people and you are going to be my witnesses. And he promises, you're going to be hated by the world. He uses the words, when they persecute you, persecution is going to happen. But he says in verse 27, the verses leading up to this statement, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And... Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. 
Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. When is the last time you shared the gospel? And could it be possible that your gospel witness is silenced because of your fear of what people would think of you? Is it possible that a friend, a coworker, or family member has not yet experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ because you have not opened your mouth? That's convicting to me. Looking at statistics that say 71% of unchurched people in America have never heard the gospel have never had a Christian sit down with them and have a meaningful conversation that says, this is how you become a Christian. How's it going? Fearing God over fearing man. That's not the only way that faith dares in adventures. You see, faith also dares to sacrifice the temporary for the eternal. We see that in Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26. Moses after being set apart and hidden by his parents, ends up being put in a basket, and what happens? He gets adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. In many senses, you could say, that's a major upgrade, right? Going from poor and persecuted and suffering family to say, I'm living in a palace now. Got that good life. He's got wealth. He has power. He's an heir to the throne. And you better believe he had access to pleasure. That was Moses' life. But after 40 years of being trained in the house of Pharaoh, what does he do? He looks at the people of God. And he says, those are my people. I'm with their God. That's who I belong to. And so he sacrifices the wealth, the power, the prestige, the access to pleasure to do what? Suffer. To suffer with the people of God. And you might ask, why would you ever do that? Why would you ever do that? And this is fascinating, okay? Verse 26 should be up on the screen. It says, he, Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. You might not know this. Moses, in this time, thousand, over a thousand years before Jesus was ever born. And what is he doing? He's looking to the person and work of Christ. And he says, man, all I know is it is better to suffer with Christ than to enjoy pleasure with this world. That's crazy to say, man, I want to become like Christ even in his suffering. I will become a rejected prophet speaking the truth of God to a wicked generation. Because guess what? That's where pleasure is found. Following Jesus. And it wasn't just Jesus versus man. It's this idea of forever versus the here and now. I love that this text even alludes to the fact that there are pleasures that come with sin, right? Any of us would be lying if we said, oh, sin has no pleasure to it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be that tempting to us. But the problem is, you and me both know, 
that those pleasures are fleeting. They are here for a moment and gone. And we're left wanting more and more and more. But Moses understands when I have Christ, I have all I need. And so he chooses the reward, eternal life, experiencing Jesus now and forever over the fleeting pleasures of sin here and now. So how is that going for us? Veritas, how's that going for you? Sacrifice is hard. And I know that we love convenience. We live in an instant gratification world. Look at the microwave, right? But we sacrifice, don't we? I don't know. At least I do. I think of, you know, I'm going to order Domino's and we're going to die to convenience. We're going to do takeout. Yep. I want, I'm not going to pay that tip and that, that delivery fee. I'm going to sacrifice and I'm going to get in my car when it's 10 below and I'm just going to drive to Domino's and get the pizza. That's sacrifice. Or maybe you're like some of my friends and people I know that say, Walmart, convenient, but also a tragedy. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend a little bit more money and I'm going to go grocery shopping at Target. Talk about a sacrifice. Tough. These are some of the sacrifices that sometimes we secretly find ourselves actually boasting in. (laughs) When the question is, what does it actually look like to sacrifice for God? Are you willing to say, I want lasting intimacy with God more than the fleeting intimacy of sexual immorality? Are you willing to say, I'm going to invest my time and money and energy in investing in the eternal kingdom of God rather than building up temporary luxuries here on earth? Are you willing to say, I'm going to follow Jesus by being incarnational and live a life of sacrifice, service, and hospitality rather than seeking the the earthly comfort of hunkering down at home, keeping your nights free, and Netflix binging? Are we willing to sacrifice the temporary for the eternal? This brings us to our last point. Faith dares to obey when it doesn't make sense. Faith dares to obey when it doesn't make sense. We see several examples here, verses 28 through 31. First, we see Moses in the Passover. The plagues are being cast out on Egypt. It's God's judgment against Egypt for the evil that they have done. And the last plague is this. All the firstborns in, in Egypt will be struck dead. Intense, right? And if you are of the people of God, here is what is trickling in your mind. God's covenant to Abraham is on the line. If God is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham, our firstborns cannot die. And so God tells Moses this. You're right. I will spare your firstborn. You only need to do this. Tell each household, go get an unblemished male lamb and sacrifice it and put its blood above your doorposts. And in doing so, the angel of death will pass over and you will be spared from death. Do you think that made a ton of sense to Moses? (laughs) 
Again, remember, this is over a thousand years before the unblemished male lamb, Jesus Christ, came and lived and died and spared us from death. We look at this and we say, oh, that makes so much sense. But to Moses, what an act of faith to say, let's get all the unblemished male lambs and let's sacrifice them and let's put blood over our doorposts because we're going to take God at his word. That's amazing. And then, as a result... Pharaoh and Egypt, they are not happy. You could about imagine why you wouldn't be. God sweeps through Egypt. All the firstborn of Egypt are killed. And here's what Pharaoh does. He says, Israel, get out. Leave. Leave Egypt. We want nothing to do with you and your God. And so they march on out. They're freed from captivity. But then Egypt changes their mind. They're like, wait a second, what have we done? What's this going to do to our economy? This is going to crash. Let's go get them. Let's chase them down. And so the people of Israel are leaving. Egypt is trailing behind them with their army. And where does God lead the people of Israel? To a dead end. Can you imagine being Israel? You end up at the Red Sea. And you can about imagine looking back and seeing the armies pressing in. And it would be pretty easy in that moment to say, God, what are you doing? But he tells Moses, lift up your staff. Lift up your staff. The waters are going to part. There's going to be walls of water on each side of you, and you will walk through on dry ground. And by faith, the people of Israel did just that. They walked through a sea on dry ground with water on each side. And guess what happens? They make it through. And when Egypt tries to follow them through, these walls come crashing down, and Israel is indeed set free from captivity. It doesn't end there. We see Rahab, verse 31. This would be found in Joshua 2. This is a woman who, when you look at this text, you might ask, how does she end up here? She is a surprising character in Hebrews 11, and here is why. She was a Gentile prostitute. This woman who most people would look at and would say, you would have nothing to do with God. You are not of the people of God, and surely look at your character. Wow. But here's what happens. As spies are sent into Jericho, this Gentile prostitute looks at these men and says, I know who your God is. This is the God that part of the Red Sea and destroyed Egypt. And guess what? I believe your God is God. And so she did not simply be a friend to these spies. She looked at the spies and said, your God is my God. An act of faith. And in doing so, she actually not only is spared when Jericho is destroyed, if you look at Matthew 1, she is in the lineage of the Messiah. That is the God we serve. That's amazing. Fast forward a few chapters in Joshua, Joshua 6. You look at Jericho, this military city that has to be conquered for God's people to enter into the land of Canaan. And you would say, man, how are we going to beat Jericho? Surely we got to build a huge army. We got to go to war. We got to take siege. God says, no, here's the deal. Get together a marching band, all right? Here's what you're going to do. You're going to walk around the city. 
And on the seventh day, you're going to walk around it seven times, and then everybody's going to shout, and you're going to play a trumpet. What? Can you imagine actually going up against this military city and saying, we're just going to march around these walls, shout, and play a trumpet? But these people took God at his word. And they did just that, and the walls of Jericho crash down. And the people of Israel reign victorious. So what does it look like for us to obey when it doesn't make sense? Looking at commands of scripture during singleness, like flee from sexual immorality, or this idea of marriage, do not be unequally yoked, we think, surely God couldn't mean that, right? I I love this person. This can't be for my good. It doesn't make sense. For the married couple who is struggling and arguing to look at what God brings together, let no man separate. Man, that doesn't seem to make sense. How could that be for my good? I just don't, I don't see it. God loves a cheerful giver. And when you start to think about your financial situation, you would say, surely God doesn't mean that for me, right? If he knew my financial situation, he surely wouldn't want me to give. That can't be for my good to sacrifice my finances. Let alone count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive as you have been forgiven in Christ. These are difficult commands. We'd be lying if we said any other way because in the moment, it doesn't seem to make sense. You could summarize this adventurous and daring faith in one simple statement. Faith dares to follow Jesus. Faith dares to follow Jesus. You look at Jesus, fully man, fully God, living this out. To say, I have come to serve my Father in heaven. When tempted by the enemy to have all the wealth of the world, he says, no, I'm going to live for my Father in heaven. He doesn't count equality with God as something to be grasped and lorded over people. He becomes a suffering servant. And in the garden, as he approaches the cross... You better believe that in his humanity, he's saying, oh man, I don't know if this really makes sense. Though he knew the end result, he's like, Father, if there is any other way, right? if you can do anything else, take this cup from me. But then when the Father ultimately says no, Jesus becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here's the deal. We can dare to follow Jesus because he's faithful. Even just looking at these stories we've highlighted today, Moses lives. Israel is delivered from Egypt. Jericho is destroyed. In faith, Rahab survives. And Jesus did not simply die on a cross. He rose again. Victorious. Defeating sin, death, and Satan. Promising that he will come back to make all things new. And in the interim, guess what? He gives the gift of his spirit to live in you and me. That is amazing. 
So when you say, wow, I want to live a daring faith that follows Jesus, the reality is you can because his spirit actually empowers you to do it. So the application for this week is to dare to follow Jesus, but it requires three simple steps. Dare to follow Jesus in three simple steps. Step one, remember God's faithfulness. Ian talked about this last week. To remember God's faithfulness to his people from eternity past. To look at all of these situations where it's like, wow, that doesn't look like it's going to play out. And guess what? God wins. Remember God's faithfulness, even in your own life, to recount the ways that he's shown up and provided for you. Step two, review the commands of God. If you want to dare to follow Jesus, you actually need to know what he asks of you. Oftentimes, I end up in a conversation where someone will say, I think God told me to do this. And an appropriate question to that is, where in God's word did you see that? We want to be people that look at our Bibles and say, God has spoken. The God of the universe has put his word before you. And he's saying, dare to follow me. Here's what I'm asking you to do. And step three, we in faith obey whatever the cost. We obey whatever the cost. Because we are looking at the invisible God and the eternal reward we actually get to prioritize following Jesus. And as we do this, I can't help but think of a quote from the late missionary William Carey. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Would that be true of us, Veritas? That as we look at our great God, that we would first and foremost expect him to do amazing things because simply that's who he is. He's an amazing God. But would that not just become a consumer mindset where we stay back and stay comfortable? Would that actually fuel us to live a life of daring adventure with him? That we would begin to attempt great things for God. And here's what's going to play out. If we do this, not only will we have a lot more fun in our faith life as we lift our eyes from the iPad and enjoy the adventure that God has set before us as if it's not enough to simply enjoy Jesus. We will also get to see God do amazing things in us and through us. We will get to tell the stories of his faithfulness as we step out, as we share the gospel, as we get beyond our comfort zones to glorify God. Amen? Let's pray to that end. Father God, thank you for who you are and how you work. Nearly every time I look at your word, I'm just amazed at your plan. God, in my humanity and in my small mind, I often think I would do it another way, but um, your plan is better. <laughs> Jesus, that you would choose to work through weak and ordinary people who are willing to step out in faith, trusting you, Jesus, looking at your faithfulness, understanding that you are for us, not against us, and taking you at your word, living as ambassadors for Christ in our city, trusting you, Jesus, when you say, if we want to gain life, we will lose ours. 
We will lay our life down for the sake of following you. So I pray, would you help me, would you help us, Veritas Church, to dare to follow you, Jesus, wherever you call us. And in doing so, would it not simply be for our benefit of getting to enjoy you? Would it be for your glory in our city and across the world? We pray in your name. Amen.